0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction Podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. For those new listeners who may not be familiar with the prize, for the past 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the best in non-fiction writing across current affairs – History, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography and the arts. At a time when non-fiction publishing is thriving, this podcast aims to explore quality non-fiction and the issues around it, as well as giving behind-the-scenes insights on this year's prize journey as we announce the 2021 longlist, shortlist and winner towards the second half of the year. In this first episode of the year, we are going to explore the art of political biography in the light of a certain outgoing president and the boom we've seen in US political publishing over the past four years or so. It's certainly a weighty topic and here to discuss it today former Bailey Gifford Prize judge and New York Times opinion editor Max Strasser, and two US publishers joining us from New York. Bria Sanford, editorial director of Sentinel and executive editor of Portfolio, imprints of Penguin Random House, and also Clive Priddle from New York, publisher of Public Affairs and imprint at Hachette in the US. Welcome, Bria, Clive and Max. It's great to have you all here. Um, And of course, we are recording this remotely. Um, Let's start by just looking at the overall picture over the last four years. I mean, we've certainly seen a huge explosion of uh, political memoirs, you might even call some of them revenge memoirs uh political exposés defenses of the president attacks on the president how would you how would you characterize let's start let's start with you bria how would you characterize what we've seen over the last 4 years in terms of the the trump administration and and what that administration has provoked in in publishing
1: hi thanks for having me on the podcast i'm delighted to be here uh it has been uh fascinating four years for political publishing here uh we I've been publishing political books for about ten years now, and I'd been looking forward to what I thought would be a certain kind of administration uh You expect that opposition books tend to tend to do best and well, actually, let me back up here. Actually, I've been I've been looking forward to this this administration being normal. The previous one was not. Uh, when Trump was elected, we actually thought Sentinel was going to go into hibernation, uh, that opposition books do best, and that there wouldn't be any space for at least conservative polit- political books. That liberal books would do well. That certainly worked. Uh, what we did were surprised to see was that actually conservative political books didn't have a downturn. So what we saw was this kind of arms race of political publishing where you have, you know, bigger and bigger anti-Trump books, anti-Trump memoir, so people leaving the administration, um, competing with bigger and bigger uh, pro-Trump books. Uh, This is a a race that I have largely stayed out of, uh, deciding to stay out of the more flash in the pan political memoir, but it's been fascinating to watch and to sort of be along for the ride.
0: Clive Friddle, how would you characterize it uh, when Bria says that she's largely kind of stepped to one side uh, just just outline for us what your view has been over over the the last four years
2: uh, Hi, it's nice to be here. Um, well, so I think uh, I think political publishing has followed the president uh, of the recently outgoing president and as has transformed itself into two very distinct types of book. Uh, One in Trump's controversial, polarizing, celebrity-oriented image. You can see a whole bunch of bestsellers uh, that that don't really purport to be about deep political thought, but they're about partisanship. They're about flag-waving. Many of them have MAGA in the subtitle somewhere. And then there is the more traditional area of political publishing, which is books about politics and society and the things that that change our world. And that is a, a much less flashy um much stabler i would say um part of the publishing universe uh that probably too has been a bit animated by the fact that trump was such a radical president i think he was radical more in expression than in achievement but definitely radicalizing in uh, in what he did to folks here but there really are two different camps of books and and half of the political publishing that well at least that bit that's in most people's minds is really celebrity publishing
0: well, we'll 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 come to that in in just a moment. Let's just get Max uh, uh, Max's thoughts on on the kind of bigger picture of of, uh, of how he how you see what has happened over the last four years. You've obviously been following it very closely, and 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 no doubt uh, there's been an awful lot of it in the New York Times opinion That's pages for sure. too. I mean,
3: I think one of the things I followed the most, and a lot of journalists did, is is there were just newsmaking books uh, during the Trump administration. You know, every couple of months it seemed like you know whether it was Bob Woodward. Edward's book or James Comey's book or John Bolton's memoir, you know, these books would drop and everyone would say, well, what's in this? What's it telling us about what's been going on inside of the White House for the last uh, few months or few years or whatever? Um, and that, from a journalistic perspective, I think has been really interesting. I think now we're set up, obviously, for the next round of post-Trump memoirs. I'm looking forward to Kellyanne Conway's book, for example. Um but I think at a certain point that will have to have to slow down to a trickle and and you know maybe the Biden administration books will have to start up.
0: Mm, I mean, well they are already coming out. I mean we've we've had um Evan Osnos's uh, biography of of Joe Biden and and of course the um uh memoirs of both michelle and uh, barack obama have done enormously well but let's let's just go back to the very beginning of the trump era because the one the one that completely detonated uh political books was was michael wolf's fire and fury inside the trump white house which emerged Really soon after he had been in power, and it was like it was it was covering the first nine months of inside the white house and and max you're so right we everyone was looking for what we could learn about um trump's White House in that book. but what struck me about that book was that it was kind of quite loose with facts in a world where everything was loose with the facts inside the trump administration you know he michael wolf. Didn't necessarily attribute the things that he said. There was there was an awful lot of um, lax journalism in in it. I, I I don't know what what each of you thought about that, but it felt to me like it seemed to be a real handbrake turn in what we are used to in political books. Bria. Well, I, ha-
1: I have not read the whole thing. I must confess, but I I will say that was my impression as well. I remember. You know, I think it was in some interview he did that he said someone asked him about this and he said, "Well, if it feels like it lands, it does." Some line like that, uh, and that that seemed very evident in the pages. I think my favorite, my favorite bit there was when he suggests, based on what, it wasn't clear that Nikki Haley and Donald Trump were having an affair, uh, and you know then was trying to call attention to this in in news appearances later. There definitely was a feeling of. You know, we're, we're used, perhaps, unfortunately, to political memoir and autobiography, where politicians are stretching the truth a little bit. I was a little less used to it being quite that dramatic in a book by someone who is purportedly presenting the news as a journalist.
0: I, I was particularly struck that in his acknowledgments, he gives a, a pretty glowing tribute to his trusted libel lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean i I think Clive what do you make of of the fact that it did seem to to be I mean whatever Michael wolf's reputation is it did seem to be a political book unlike the traditional political books that we had seen up until that point that that it was it was suffused with the writer's perspective and selection of material but he'd kind of it's almost as though he was saying I'm not I'm not going to take a view on this in the end. I'm just going to lay out a whole bunch of things that I've overheard or that I uh, was told myself, and I'm going to let you make up your mind. So in that way, it was kind of like a a thrown together journalese of a book rather than than a kind of um, traditional political biography.
2: Well, I think uh, he's certainly got company in that space. He's not the first person to do that. I think you could argue that many of Bob Woodward's books have also um, benefited from anonymous sourcing. And essentially, the reader has to trust uh, that the author is telling the truth or, or giving a, a truthful enough impression. And um, uh, so I think, I mean, I think, I don't think Michael wolf was breaking new ground there. Um, he was perhaps a little more flamboyant than Woodward would ever have been. And I think, uh, you know, they have different, careers behind them um, but i think what wolf did brilliantly was was tap an emotional need in some readers he gave people the sort of insight and the sort of emotional revelations that they desperately wanted to hear and and in terms of you know, meeting customer demand, his book was an astonishing mm. and, success.
0: And I mean, it, he wasn't alone in there being huge success when it comes to uh, what we wanted to learn about uh, uh, Trump or our, our our insatiable curiosity of uh, uh, about Trump. Uh, Bria, what, what's, your, what's your sense of, of how successful um, political publishing has been in this period? Because it, it, it did feel as though there was one bestseller after another relating to the Trump administration.
1: Well, certainly some of the, the highs, some of the hits were had bigger highs than we've seen in publishing in a long time, um, Wolves being one of them. Um, it was interesting, well, as I've been watching over the last four years, it was segmenting out, watching how the pro-Trump books did, the anti-Trump and the kind of never-Trump or different uh, sort of third catch-all category of conservative books did. I was surprised to see, not not surprised at all to see that the anti-Trump books did really well. But what was interesting was to see that they did start dipping. Uh, Michael Wolff's second book didn't sell nearly what the first book did. And by 2019... You saw diminishing returns where each of those anti-trump books the advances were much much bigger, and the returns tended to be smaller with some big exceptions
0: uh, and I, what I what you, were
1: the exceptions um the exceptions would be woodward's, I believe um I guess Comey's was earlier on, and what about mary and, mary trump Mary trump, sorry yes Mary Trump that was the big one that was was huge
2: but but that really almost isn't a political book it's about the president but it's so much inside his head it's her psychological rendering of trump it's a celebrity yes yeah, so they
1: really do they work like celebrity books they work a little bit like fiction in some ways uh, where you know you've got that 12 days to launch it i like carlos lazada's line uh in his book what were we thinking where he reviewed all of these books from the trump era where he said something like every book can be a trump book and then said also uh Maybe the most essential books of the Trump era are not about Trump at all, and it did seem like in the last four years, yeah, the books that were about Trump might not even be about politics. The books that were not about Trump were about him in some sort of sub, subtle way or not so subtle way. Well, well
0: let's talk about the, that distinction then. The celebrity book. I mean, Clive, what, what other, which, which of the others of these books are, were would you cast in in that mold?
2: Oh, I think there's a. Uh, if you look at the the best-selling books from 2020, especially, um, but not exclusively by any means, coming from commentators on the right, that many of them are selling on the basis of the celebrity of the commentator. Uh, so, I mean, you know, Sean Hannity's book was probably one of the best-selling books of 2020. Uh, you know exactly what you're getting from Sean Hannity if you're buying his book. Um, and he helps you by, you know, calling it live free or die. Um, so it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, Candace Owens was a, was an also a very successful book last year, uh, in terms of sales. Um, she was, uh, unusual in that she was a young black woman, very pro Trump. Um, and she, she delivered a book, which was, you know, pure provocation, I think. And I, I say that just On the basis of her subtitle, uh, how black America can make its second escape from the Democrat plantation. Um, You know, I'm not sure that's that's deep politics. I think that's, you know, using her platform, using her celebrity and using her. Uh, as I say, rather particular special status as a black republican. But young so man. much of this feels
3: to me like uh, reflections of the political condition in America over the last four years, more generally. I mean, it's it's provocation, it's polarization, it's celebrity worship. I mean, it's all the things that have happened to to news media, to television, to to politics overall, right?
0: Yeah, I, I I would have said so. I mean, Bria, do you do you feel that that's that's what's happened? much more starkly in the publishing world over the last four years, that it it's what it's doing is merely reflecting the polarization in both politics and society at large.
1: I mean, I, the, the focus on political books as celebrity isn't particularly new to the Trump era, but per the size of those books and their success has grown. I suppose you could say it does reflect partly the polarization, I think it also reflects even more than that, though, a decline in the general readership's interest in politics as the interaction between institutions and not individuals that it's become much more you're looking at how this face, the face of this person is interacting with the face of that person. You know, how, how are AOC and Ted Cruz going back and forth? And as you view pol- politics as more, you know, an issue of personalities, then the more you're going to be interested, if you're a political person in, in these memoirs, then you would be in the more substantive
0: books. Do, do you think then that we should look in, in the context of what we've just been talking about, that we should look at the, the memoirs of the Obamas as celebrity memoirs? Is that what they are really? Yes, for sure. I would say so. Clive, what do you think?
2: Uh, I, I don't think you can, you can't take away the celebrity from uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. They, they are extraordinarily popular people and therefore their book sales um, reflect that. I think you can also say that they are a qualitatively different thing um, to some of those other books that I've just been talking about, which are, you know, shoutier, rabble rousing. I don't, I don't think you mm-hmm. can accuse Barack Obama or Michelle Obama of having gone into their books with that intention, I think uh, they actually wrote much more traditional. Um, in the case of Barack Obama, much more traditional uh, biography, autobiography, and in the case of Michelle, um, certainly much more of a a message uh, book for her. But I don't know. I just I can't I can't really put them in the same part of the bookstore as some of these other books in my head, um, even though that's exactly where they turn up.
3: I agree, and I especially think Barack Obama's book, I mean, Barack Obama is such a, he's, he's a writer as well as a politician, right? He was sort of, he was a writer almost before he was a politician, and his book does not read, I think, even like the tra- traditional political memoir. He's so, I, f- I found him insightful and introspective in a way that's pretty rare uh, among political memoir. But And, and in a way, mind. you
0: could—you know, you can see you, you're right, Max, because Dreams of My Father was just such an accomplished piece of writing. Even right, if you can exactly. argue against somebody writing their memoirs at such a young age, I mean, he had that unique story to tell apart from anything else. But, but I, I mean, I do, I do wonder about the 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 kind of tension between these these books that make the news because we're looking for news nuggets in them. For example, James Comey's book. I mean, I, it, it strikes. Me. I haven't read all of Comey's book, but I've dipped into it, and it does strike me as a book that. That is not just well written. I mean, he has this kind of quality of writing that is traditional for somebody who is wanting to be taken seriously. But we are also in this story because we want we want the nuggets. And I I there's a part of me that just thinks that he doesn't really fall into any of those categories that we've been talking about so far.
2: Yeah. So I mean I think the judgment on James Comey's books and contribution will be easier to see after we know a little bit more about the second one which is just out now um and whether whether his audience is transferred to this second book or whether you know the first book was really a product of him occupying an incredibly high profile position at a very public moment an unusually public moment um for that role and that people came to it really with all sorts of hopes and expectations that they were going to get the inside track on something. Um, Especially because, you know, the FBI was very much in the spotlight for having allegedly or not interfered with an election. I don't know whether James Comey is going to retain that audience. I think it'd be really interesting to see. And I think really to some extent, it's not really fair to say you can judge one book on the basis of the next one, but I think you can perhaps judge the seriousness of the audience on the basis of whether it travels with him.
0: Let, let's let's talk about the way in which the um, political events have made an impact on on publications in the context of the dying days of the Trump administration. So Simon and Schuster dropped Josh Hawley's uh, book, which was about um, big tech, um, after the attack on the Capitol Hill building. I, Bria, what, what do you what do you make of that decision? Given that it it felt felt very swift, it felt surprising. I was also surprised at how
1: swift it was. I was less surprised that it happened at all, but I expected them to to wait a bit and perhaps do that quietly if that was the direction they were choosing to go. Publishers are making decisions based on a lot of different metrics. Uh, there's the there's how people are responding internally. There's how you think that the base, the readership, the base of the readership that you were expecting will change as a result of something. There's how you how you think uh, the media will respond and your other authors will respond. It's hard to, hard to say what any other publisher's calculation was exactly. But uh, it's certainly
0: certainly interesting to watch. Mm. Max, what did you make of the decision?
3: I mean, I think Bria put it well, to be honest, I think, and she certainly knows more about how publishers make decisions than I do. I mean, it seems like, you know, Josh Hawley's going to call it cancel culture or whatever, but it seems like it was a pretty um, complicated calculus that Simon and Schuster had to make about, you know, where the rest of their list was going to fall on this and where audiences were going to be and what kind of PR blowback they would have to face. And uh, I guess, you know, they did what they thought was right for, for them as a house.
0: Clive, what do you make of of the the idea that people looking into the publishing world would say that book publishing doesn't make it a habit to treat ethical dile- dilemmas as as a, a part of their what they make their business? Right, they they follow the bottom line on the whole. So, so in that context, would it have been different if? It had been. It was going to be published on um, a much smaller imprint, but still part of Simon and Schuster.
2: Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it is going to be published. I just want to make that point. So, one of the uh, conversations that sometimes swirls around uh, moments like this is whether publishers are, you know, um, voiding the author's rights by canceling a book. Uh, And in my view, they're not. And I don't know what went into the Simon & Schuster decision at all. Um, uh, And I don't have a view about it because I haven't read the book. Um, But they are absolutely allowed to make whatever commercial decisions they like about whatever they want to publish. And um, they would obviously prefer probably not to do it in full public view. But there's no obligation for them to publish books that they think are not viable. Um, And they clearly came to that decision over this one. And then Josh Hawley got a new publisher very quickly, uh, and that book is going to find its way into the market. And you know, perhaps it will do additionally well because of the the slight that he suffered from um, from his originating publisher. So, you know, this may all work out just fine for Senator Hawley. Um, and I, I don't I don't feel especially sorry for his predicament. Um, uh, I feel a little bit more sorry for Simon Schuster. But you know, the thing that sticks in my mind there is they did agree to buy the book in the first place um so they did that once before they you know they bought a book from what looked like a pretty execrable source and it blew up in their faces i i I think you just have to ask the question should they have done it in the first place
0: so I, 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 this is really a question because I don't know the answer to this at all. Is is it the case, and this is really for Breer and, and for Clyde, that, that the five big publishing houses that, that put out the majority of trade books in the United States have right-wing imprints?
2: Uh, yes, I, I think it's true that everybody has a space for um, right-wing publishing. Uh, we certainly do at Hachette. Um, and I think within both, both a, a dedicated space uh, and then within some of the more general lists, uh, they I'm sure would like to uh, consider themselves as general publishers who have a broad publishing tolerance and uh, and program. And I would certainly say that for the list that I work on, you know. And I, in fact, I was saying that earlier this week to a literary agent who was pitching me a book, um, which I didn't want to do. But I said, you know, it's important that we publish good conservative books, and I, I absolutely have room for this. I just thought that what I was being offered was not that.
0: And when you say good um, conservative books, I mean, these are not imprints that uh, will have lower standards or different standards to things like fact-checking and so on. They'll still adhere to the standards of of other publishing houses and and imprints. Is that right?
2: So I think that is broadly right, although um, I want to just suggest that fact checking is not necessarily the solution to what people see as as the the issue of of right wing publishing it's often not whether the facts are correct it's how they're connected and the opinions that surround them that turns a book into a sort of uh you know very Great. volatile set of chemicals so um there's something to do with the intent i think that perhaps publishers haven't wrestled with very much in the past and that maybe now we need to look at i think that more than anything was what crystallized around the events of the 6th of January the thought that you know publishing in some way could contribute to agitating people that could lead to an attack on democracy and that that had never happened before the last people to have assaulted the capital were my fellow countrymen um, in 1814 so these are this is a new set of circumstances and i think it's appropriate that you know, Simon Schuster and the rest of us should be newly careful about what we're doing
0: so so that this is this is really interesting Bria what do you make of this because it seems to me that when we're talking about intent we also have to bear in mind that there are still more than 75 million close to 75 million people who support President Trump um, a vast majority of them buy into the lie that he fed them that the election was stolen in the context context that this could be a potential market for conservative books that speak to this audience, how does a publishing house weigh up which way they, they look, which way they turn? Well, if I were going to predict
1: how other publishing houses would work, I would say that it's good to consider that there will be publishers who decide not to do Stop the Steel Books simply out of consideration that they don't want to end up having to cancel you know, a Milo Yiannopoulos book or a Josh Hawley book uh, that they don't want to deal with the consequences later and that they will be just deciding not to do them less because of moral considerations or considerations for the truth and more because of the liability. I think there will be other publishers who do have bright lines for themselves uh, but it'll be impossible to tell which is which from the outside as you watch.
0: Max, the the Trump administration was unique on so many levels. And as the Biden administration uh, settles down into um, the the more prosaic issues of just governing, I I just wonder whether you See whether you project over the next four years that we 're just you know it 's going to be quieter, the political landscape is already much quieter what What do you think is going to is going to happen when when you look at the the sorts of things that that your readers are going to be interested in and and, and what people are going to be wanting to buy and read
3: well, I mean, I think that there 's going to be a lot less appetite for the kinds of things we were talking about earlier, sort of these tell all Books or sort of inside the administration books. I mean, I'm. We'll speak for myself, but uh, <laughs> I'll speak for myself. But I'm not. I'm not exactly dying to read. You know, Pete Buttigieg's memoir about how to save Amtrak. You know, um, so like, I think it's going to be a. We're going to be talking more about about ideas and about policy. Um, and actually, you know, I, I think there's actually a huge role for 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 Bria and for publishers in sort of the conservative ideas world. To, to do work right now, especially as the Republican Party is sort of figuring out what it is and where it's going. I think there's like a battle of ideas happening around conservatism that is going to play out in books and on op ed pages. And to me, that's one of the more interesting and exciting political stories in America right now, much more so than, uh, you know, what's happening in the Biden White House day to day.
0: Clive and Bria, tell tell me what you're looking forward to over the next four five years.
2: Bria, do you have a five year look forward?
1: Ooh, I've, I've thought as far as four. I probably should be thinking five at this point. Uh, I am very curious, one to see how the stop the steel stuff plays out because I think Max is correct that there's some real opportunity for some interesting, you know, old fashioned substantive ideas. Political publishing being quite commercial, as you see, conservatives of different stripes duking it out. Um, I can also see a few stop the steal books being big and sucking all the oxygen out of that. Um, But I'm I'm excited for a chance for more books that will be a little less personality driven. Perhaps I'm sure there will be plenty of anti Biden books. There's a lot of there's a breadth of of ways one can criticize Biden. That wasn't that opens up possibilities that weren't there under Trump, where it really felt like people were wanting to know, you know, are you for or against Trump, and that's sort of the top line of your book. Um, Whereas under Biden, I think we can see a lot more of uh, sort of populism bringing the interesting horseshoe aspects of this conversation out, where you see, you know, the populist left joining with the populist right on some questions, and I'm I'm curious to see how that looks under under Biden. I don't I don't know for sure, but I'm I'm looking forward to this. Clive, I'm very interested in your answer.
0: Yeah, Clive, the last word to
2: you. I definitely can't see four years ahead. Um, uh, I, I I, just think there's there are, in some ways, the more substantive things are also more exciting because they're substantive. So, you know, you have um, a woman now in charge at the Treasury who is the first woman to hold all of the three great financial um, offices in this country, and she's an amazing and underestimated woman. And so, what Janet Yellen,
0: Janet Yellen you're speaking about? I am
2: talking about Janet Yellen. What she gets up to is gonna is gonna be as impactful as anybody else. And yet, you know, perhaps because she's five foot nothing, everybody tends to look over the top of Janet Yellen. But she's really, really important, and I hope she gets. A significant amount of attention uh, for the job that she's got in hand. Um, in the same vein you know this country along with many others including the UK has been printing magic money for the last um, two or three years to do various things and uh, there needs to be a significant economic reckoning. That's a big political story too and it's not got nothing really to do with personalities. So I mean I think there really are some substance issues which which I hope will get a bit more time. Um, uh, And although they sound a little earnest, um, I'm kind of bored with Putin. I'm definitely bored with Trump. I don't want to talk about Dominion election counting machines at all. Um, Save the steel sounds like a... A jolly good slogan, and I hope it goes the way of many other slogans before it and that we move on to something else.
0: Thank you all so much for taking part in this conversation. Bria Sanford and Clive Priddle in the United States and Max Trasser here in London. Um, That's all we've got time for on this episode. To keep up to date with the latest news about the prize, do please follow at BGPrize on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram and you can also sign up for our newsletter through the website. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in non-fiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. In 2020... Craig Brown won the Bailey Gifford Prize for his kaleidoscopic biography of the Beatles, one, two, three, four, the Beatles in time, and was described by the prize judges. Max Strasser was one of them as a joyous, irreverent, insightful celebration of the Beatles, a highly original take on familiar territory. It's also a profound book about success and failure, which won the unanimous support of our judges. Craig Brown has reinvented the art of biography. Definitely worth a read. The 2021 prize longlist will be announced in September, followed by the shortlist in October. The winner of the prize this year will be announced in November. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast. Till the next time, bye bye. Read smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.